Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, It's a busy time for me. I'm getting ready for a bunch of events and travel around high weirdness. I just got one in the mail, a physical copy, the actual iconic expression of way too many years of work. Uh, And I must say, I'm extremely happy with it. I'm not just pushing you out there or mentioning the fact that if you go to the Stranger Tractor website, you can... Uh, you can order the special edition of the High Weirdness book, which comes with a, uh, a patch <laughs> and a little chapbook with some extra writings uh, and a signed book plate, uh, illustrated by Eric Roper, who also did the cover. Um, so, Stranger Tractor website, High Weirdness, check it out. But I'm uh, I'm very happy. You know, I, I usually I'm one of those kind of uh, sort of restlessly productive, unsatisfied people who, when I do things, I just see what is kind of bad about them. And for some reason, this time I'm actually able to go, wow, that's really cool. I really like this book. <laughs> it's got good photographs. It all worked out. Really happy. So uh, so that's a nice uh, that's a nice little spring uh, rejuvenation uh, for me. And, and I'm feeling the, uh, the magic in the air, uh, definitely. And uh, magic in the air is a good, good way to feel uh, for our conversation today with the poet Jonica Stuckey, uh, who I first saw, I didn't know anything about him because I'm not that hip to poetry anymore. As you realized last couple, a couple weeks ago, we did another poetry show on James Merrill, who is a dead guy. So I'm usually on the dead guy poet side of things, uh, not because of lack of interest, just lack of reading time. Uh, so I was very happy to um, stumble into uh, a Jonica performance at the Language of the Birds exhibit that Pamela Grossman put together at NYU uh, in 2016, which was a great uh, art event, really wonderful collection of pieces. And there were a few performances that went along with it, including uh, Jonica Reading. And Jonica Reading is is just no joke. I mean, the the poetry is, is rich esoteric, occult, impassioned, mystical, you know, earnest, over the top, uh, a breath of fresh air, ecstatic in a way that you feel like is almost impossible to get to in our like postmodern, ironic, hypermediated times. And you kind of like wonder how it, how he pulls it off. And on the page, you might go, yeah, yeah, okay, he's just making those moves with language. I, you know, I, maybe I'm not buying it if you're a more cynical type. Not to say I am. I, I'm not that cynical when I read poetry. Um, but uh, seeing him live, you're like, woof, this guy is like uh, walking the talk, as they say. Um, and so I want to talk to him about his, uh, his new book, Ascend, Ascend. Just a few things about him first. Um, he's not like a he's not like a James Merrill poet from a you know highbrow literary uh, super uh, you know uh, New York intelligentsia kind of background. Uh, instead, as you'll be able to tell, he kind of came up with a, a street poetry style, and he was part of a group uh, called the Guerrilla Poets, and they're part of their whole purview was to uh, perform poetry outside of its normal context. So really part of that whole sort of, you know, revival of beat influenced uh, uh, um, street poetry that really exploded uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, And then uh, one thing that we'll talk about more for sure is that he he had some, uh, spent some time 
uh, leading a neo-burlesque burlesque troupe called the Black Cat Burlesque and sort of being a, a horror show MC under the name Jay Cannibal. And I, I want you to keep the horror theme in mind because when, when you read articles about uh, Stuckey's poetry, they'll talk about the ecstasis, the love, the passion, the, the mysticism, and all that's true. Uh, but so far, nobody talks about the horror. And the horror, I mean, in a, in a way, not only in terms of the genre of horror, but in terms of sacred horror and what the heck sacred horror means. Uh, and so I was very pleased to find that this is part of the backdrop. Um, and then uh, just one more bit, his, uh, uh, his first book on Third Man Books, which is a spinoff of uh, Third Man Records, Jack White's record label, uh, was called uh, The Truth Is We Are Perfect, which I try to contemplate. It's, a, it's an impossible thought that nonetheless, I think we almost deeply imbibe w- without denying the contradictions it implies. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. And so rather than the normal, hey man, how are you doing? What's going on? Introduction to the show. I thought I'd give you a little slice more of the way I first uh, experienced uh, a Stuckey, which is to hear him read. So for right now, we're going to hear a brief excerpt from the book-length poem that's coming out soon, Ascend, Ascend. And I am the crown of strangers, dripping ragged rows of teeth, dripping dabberlocks of kelp, the sightless hunger fanging endlessly into hollow depths, I am the pre-world objectless scape of ink extolling the death bell forever calling each fin to sup. I am the eater of history and darkness fattening my teeth on the wild misery of knives. I am the root of the tongue bit off to guard against the benthic memory of death. I am the ambush of prophecy illuminating the abyssal plain, formless, fathomless insomnia of stars through which angels unendingly dream of filling their ever-widening mouths with the wet muscles of infinite human dead. I explode in blood sublimely each epoch of my red milk forged to tendrils of perfect knowing in the ceaseless gentle hammering of gills. Here where the worthless rings of history mime the world's hunger. Here where the translucent fruit of sleep capsizes to shadowless nothing. Here, where tentacles clench, unclench, and grasp the haunted crystalline tomorrows of our stale and venomous moans. Here, where disbanded heavens noon the breathing oath, the leave-taking of our senses senselessly measured now. Here, where drowning plants the first kiss of remembering upon the ecstatic lamentation of our descent. I explode in blood sublimely dispossessed, approaching the negative dusk of rainbows extinguished in the belly of a terrible worm. I explode in blood sublimely consumed by the surging tide, smiling wide, smiling wide, soothed in the gore of my undoing, ever widening, smiling wide. (laughs) 
I explode in blood sublimely, flushed with fevers, dreaming down, strangling and twined, forever strangling in the seagrass, twining judgment of the flesh. I explode in blood sublimely, the darkness receive me, the water receive me, the infinite sea of my heart receive me, the angels receive me amid their thrashing, enormous flippers receive me, and fins receive me, amid the thunderous gnashing of their unutterable teeth receive me, amid their cavernous and holy gullets receive me, amid great unwinding threshing tentacles of their tongues receive me, amid the flood of the numinous bile receive me, amid the spectacular mystery of their vengeance receive me, amid the heaviest night of fallen atrocity receive me, amid the sanctuary of their horror, their ancient Celestine appetite receive me, amid their glutted cosmic uncoiling receive me, receive me, amid their thick and sick and ravenous crowns receive me, their savage enunciation of gore receive me, gargantuan craws thrumming with ichor receive me, receive me, receive me, receive me. I explode in blood sublimely, seething multitudes over sunken mountains, primordial and boundless, bloomed in dilating seraphic veins. I explode in blood sublimely transparent and eyeless, bristle-mouthed and angling, groping the hadopelagic darkness in bony dimorphic dread. I explode in blood sublimely, fragmented as I am, in the moment so fragile, free from the spell of the world and its shadow, I reach to seize the is of nothing the fourth dimension of the eternal now, and like an insect, I buzz, hallelujah, into the abyss. Oh, man. Excellent. Thank you so much for uh, for giving us a good juicy slice there. I hope people are just like <laughs> driving in their cars right now going, uh, I, I might have to pull over for a bit. <laughs> oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, you know. Uh, you, you know, we <laughs> we had said I was going to read a more uh, mystical ascension excerpt of the book, and then when you talked about the the sacred horror, I said, uh, "Screw it, let's go with the Leviathan angels." No, I really love that. I mean, the Hallelujah into the Abyss uh, strikes uh, deep chords. I mean, that's one of the things I I love about more visionary or ecstatic poetry is that even, you know, it, it's like you're invited to try to follow the meaning of the words and then you realize that that's only going to get you part of the way and you kind of have to go with the sound of the words and then you realize that you're you're actually inviting in this language to trigger associations, memories, dreams, em emotions inside of you. And so it's like suddenly you're like, wow, I'm going to I'm it's like a drug. I'm like going on this inner trip. And there were many points in your in your poem that brought up, you know, fr uh, points of mystical horrors, only the way I can describe it, points of psychedelic trips, of yep. nightmares, of deep reading, of uh, late night uh, d disturbing thoughts. Uh, but I, and, I, and I say all that not to say just horror like a genre, but like when the sacred 
urge, when the, the, the yearning for the absolute, the yearning for love, the yearning for connection with the cosmos can't help but confront horror in, in, in both the kind of, you know, uh, sense of imagery or, or of, of gross things, but, but, but also a sense of emotion, uh, and I just, I mean, because you, I, you know, I just found out when doing research for this about your kind of, you know, your uh, <laughs> MC Cannibal uh, background. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a, about your kind of experience of horror and how that came into your work uh, a, as a poet. Yeah, well, um, yeah, your con- your commentary reminds me of uh, one of my, not only my favorite lines from Rilke, but one that I read early on, I'd say in my um, early 20s, that was really influential on me as a, not just as a poet, but as a artist in general. And it's it's early on in, it, in his first elegy from the Dueno Elegies. And he's actually talking about angels as well. Um, and he says, for beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we are barely able to endure and are awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Um, and these, the, the idea of these uh, angels being terrifying, be, I mean, that's what awe is, you know, it's that, that reverence and dr- mixed with dread because it, at any moment it could destroy you. It's so awesome. Um, and I believe that, that that can be the, not only can it be the heart of an, of an aesthetic experience, you know, let's take religion out of it, but just the heart of a, an aesthetic experience. Um, but that is, that's the, that's what I strive for in art, whether it's in burlesque or in poetry or performance or what I seek out when I want a really fulfilling aesthetic experience. Um, but to go to your, your question about the, um, black cat burlesque. Um, so yeah, I I wasn't really the leader of the troupe. I, I actually started as a very, uh, like secondary supporting cast member in the troupe. It started, this was sort of at the very uh, nascent early stage of the burlesque revival movement um, in the early 2000s. Um, and uh, I was actually working as an undertaker at the time. And uh, I, I was working an overnight shift at the funeral home. And this woman was there uh, wiring the funeral home all night for like uh high-speed internet and you know i could just kind of tell she was kind of cool and we started talking because we were both there all night i have to sit there and embalm people or (laughs) answer telephones or whatever and she's there like drilling holes in walls and going up and down the stairs and everything and long story short we connected over a mutual love of horror of b-movies and turned out that she was doing this burlesque performance and she was really on the vanguard of it she kind of helped build the the uh the burlesque revival scene in boston and she had gotten sick of doing the more sort of traditional vintage uh peel you know cutesy burlesque and because she loved horror and because she was dating this really great illustrator mr rushu um could make masks and costumes and everything um they started black hat burlesque as this um horror-themed burlesque, which no one was really doing back then. Everything was still very much in that traditional, like, vintage 
shimmy type of burlesque that you think of like Vegas burlesque or something. And I thought, oh man, that's so cool. You know, my girlfriend at the time was a dancer and choreographer. And I thought you guys should connect. She'd probably love to get involved in burlesque. And she's also a horror fan. And I, I started performing with them just because um, my girlfriend was doing it. She, we then got married and was my first wife, but um, you know, just to kind of like be the straight man, we were doing narrative scenes for burlesque so like every act was this little vignette and i'd usually play uh, a monster or a straight man or a victim of some kind and the idea behind what we were doing was because burlesque itself has sort of complicated with ideas of the male gaze and trying to find feminist ways to turn that on its head and then horror of course also has a long troubled history with misogyny as well so we wanted to write these acts where the female was always the final girl was always the triumphant um character in it and we, she was either outwitting a monster or maybe she was more of like a black widow character who would seduce and destroy men or whatever um, but that's how it got started and then i almost dropped out and then i sort of thought well because I'm, you know, I'm not a dancer and I don't make all this cool visual art. What, what is there for me there? And then I decided, well, I'm going to create this character, Jay Cannibal. And I, I love, I love like spook shows and B movie stuff. And I'm just going to create a, a spook show night that's like hosted by Jay Cannibal. And my Jay Cannibal character, you can find him online. I don't, I've retired him for a number of years now, but it's all like skull makeup and black leather and leopard faux uh for bondage pants and everything and i just started doing these spook show nights in boston where we would have a zombie costume contest and a live band and live burlesque followed by some cult film on 35 millimeter um and they just blew up like the first one i did i thought i'd be lucky if i got 50 people to show up 400 people showed up for it and then it just kind of took off from there and i did that for like 10 years. <laughs> what a blast, man. That sounds really great. But I, I love that for a lot of reasons. One is that, is that you know, clearly you've, you've tuned in, uh, at least for me, to one of the most important um, sort of aspects of horror, which is that it's full of schlock. It's mm-hmm. full of, of problematic, uh, you know, racial, sexual, gender, yeah. vi- you know, patho- pathologies, neuroses, whatever. And that in some sense, if you're really going to like see, go through horror for what it is, you kind of have to take a lot of that stuff on and kind of find your way through it. Yeah. But there's also this vein uh, of, of Iker or whatever, of some kind of, you know, uh, cosmic demon blood in it where you, 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 it provides an access to the sublime or to the cosmic or to the awesome or to the absolute. And you kind of have to go through the gutters to get there. Um, and it's, so I think it's a great, you know, like you could be presenting your poetry in a much more high toned way. You know, there are, you know, we both know, 
occult magicians who take themselves extremely seriously and they have this kind of radiating you know like <laughs> sense of like gloom and seriousness and it's quite effective to certain people they respond to that people in the occult respond to that people in the goth world respond to that people who are just looking for something that seems more serious than everything in, in popular culture respond to it and while your poetry and your persona have a, a deep seriousness of intent to them you there's a, a a willingness to kind of revel uh in the excesses of yeah. the horror as an aesthetic which yeah. i really appreciate yeah i mean uh <clears throat> i think uh for it it's kind of works on a on a couple levels for me i mean one is you know i grew up um in a, in an ashram community uh, my parents lived in in a couple of them when I was a young child. And then we would always return to them on school vacations and things like that. Who was the guru, um, if I may ask? Uh, the guru was uh, Baba Muktananda, the Siddha Yoga uh, ashram, sort of a- Sure. Yeah. Um, they, they were actually early adopters. That's how they, they met, where they were on tour with him. Um, and they lived in India for a while, and then they ran a meditation center in France, and then when my mom got pregnant, they came back to the States. Um, so, uh, and, and, and it wasn't just, that was the main tradition that uh, I was raised in, but my mom's side of the family is Jewish. My dad's side of the family is Episcopal. Uh, and then they also took me to really every imaginable uh, guru, holy man, holy woman, psychic surgeon tradition that you can, if it existed and it was within like driving distance, they would take me there. <laughs> um, but so I got exposed to a lot of, a lot of that uh, early on. And I mean, it was very much, my parents are very much sort of like bhakti yogis, like, like the tradition of light and, and absolute love and sort of like this divine radiance. Um, so probably partially because of that, I got like really interested into like goetic demonology <laughs> at an early age, you know, um, but, uh, and, and also just observing that, I mean, like so much of that stuff, there's also a dark side to it, or there's a hypocritical side to it, um, which I think when you're raised in it and you're a very astute and observant child, you pick up on that really quickly as well. Um, and so, um, both because of like my early, you could kind of call it like goth punk adolescence interest in, in the darker side of the occult and my upbringing in the, in that sort of light working traditions. Um, that's always the, the balance of those two is one I've always vacillated between in my work. Like it is both. And I try not to overcorrect either way and try and not to be like, oh, the world's a really dark and ugly place, so I only want to focus on the light. Or like you were talking about, you know, uh, you know, oh, too many people are focused on the light. I'm going to be the Antichrist, you know. <laughs> like it's, it's neither. It's both, you know. Um, and, and I love, I love some of the, the contemporary traditions that really play with that, like the Process Church and, you know, Lucifer and Lightbringer, but also Satanic character and, um, so from a, from a sort of mystical or spiritual perspective, I, I like walking that line. And then, um, and then from an aesthetic experience, uh, uh, perspective, yeah, I mean, I, early on in my poetry, um, as I was developing it, I was much more of like an MFA workshop poet, 
trying to sort of write in the Iowa style of like reserved narrative, uh, <laughs> quiet work. And then I just thought, you know, that this isn't me. Like I'm, I want, I want drama. I want my, my early loves were like German romantics and French surrealists. And that's the imagery and the sort of maximalist aesthetic that I wanted to bring into my work. And it might not be as in vogue in contemporary poetry right now, um, sort of in the more academic world of contemporary poetry. Um, but that's, that's what speaks to me and that's what excites me. Well, I mean, it, it's, it also requires a whole journey on your part. I mean, to become that kind of poet in the context where there's so much emphasis on other modes of poetry, uh, yeah. you know, you, you've got to go in your own journey. You can't just like decide to do that. You got to like put yourself into <laughs> yeah. doing that. And that's of course, part of what comes, what comes across. Um, and, you know, indeed, part of the backstory of, a, of Ascend, Ascend, which we, we heard a, a small portion of earlier, um, is that you, you're, you, you not only, uh, you know, put yourself into a ritual context over 20 odd days, uh, you yeah. know, and I, I want to find out more about that, um, you know, what you set out to do and how you uh, what kind of practices you had and what you were willing to try as a kind of inspiration or a sort of site of a different kind of writing. So I'm interested in that, but I also want to, you know, note right up, on, right up on top that I'm also interested in the decisions you make as an artist to tell us that, like how yeah. you, how you ride the tricky line of writing who you are, where you're f from, what's going on with you, and then recognizing that there's a certain kind of "Quote unquote authenticity that then becomes part of who, how you uh, are represented in the world, and those two things can be really interesting and, and have, have lots of tensions um, in them. So I just love to hear like how ascend ascend as a sort of ritual project as well as a poetic po project, you know, got going and how you carved out that time and how you. Um, how you set yourself up in a way to go through this rather harrowing journey that is uh, uh, re recorded or, or simulated uh, with these wonderful words. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think to, before I talk specifically about the book, but you know, you asked a little bit about my choices as a, as an artist to do what I do. So ascend, ascend aside, <laughs> uh, you know, as a poet, um, working in, I guess, a more mystical tradition of poetry, I, I think a lot about how on a semantic level, um, we really, we create the world through language, you know, and there, there's biblical precedent for that. There's Talmudic or Vedic precedent for that. Um, and so that, and, and in a more uh, philosophical precedent, there's no thought without words. Um, but you know, from a from magical perspective, that's that's basic level. That's that's a cantrip, <laughs> you know. Um, and and so the the language or the the magical power of language can be so much more if we wield it with intention. And that's what I love about poetry. That a great poem takes this takes language, this material that's accessible to everyone, and it shapes it into, into a powerful spell. Um, and all the, all the techniques of poetic craft, you know, metaphor, meter, image, symbolism, rhyme, all, the, all of those craft elements are also elements of a ritual. Um, 
and uh yeah even even just like the you know the just some basic prosody i mean just just the way that you enunciate it was it's interesting like having done some ceremonial magic uh you know and, and so then you do you, you're doing it with a group or where, where there's a yeah. script so it's like scripted you know go, golden dawn tradition kind of style and then you have these scripts and people are playing roles and you know bless their hearts but some people just aren't readers and so it's like comes <laughs> off like real cornball right you yeah. know like just like yeah. bad you know bad like uh high school theater <laughs> thing or you know like goths yeah. or something but like yeah. i've you know I've, i have a good reading voice i i've i studied poetry in college and you know i i can you know I, I, whatever i got i have a re i can read so i could take even the kind of trivial things and then you know <laughs> turn them into these events and it would sound really good but then you i could yeah. sort of do that with a phone book if i wanted to <laughs> right. you know right. uh, <laughs> well, yeah yeah yeah, of course it helps if you have like a background in theater or something like that. I mean, I, I also have that. Um, but, but I think even beyond that, I mean, you could still have, um, you could still have that experience, you know, that experience or that skill, that timber in your voice. Um, and if you're not invested in it, it there's still something that's going to be hollow about it, you know? And, and, I do want my I do want my readings to be initiatory. Um, there's something about that performative moment um, where our consciousness is altered, and even when I'm not reading something like Ascend Ascend that is a mystical text, where even when I'm reading uh, doing a, a poetry reading where I'm reading a number of you know love poems or uh, other material, um, I don't I don't choose anything to read that I'm not feeling in that moment on that day. You know, I don't go into a reading two days before being like, Oh, I'm going to read these poems. I kind of like the hour before the reading, I sort of pick my set list or even in the moment, just kind of feel my way into it. Um, and that's because I don't, I never want to utter a poem without concentration. I want to be in it. I want to be in the moment and I want to be feeling it. And through that, sanctifying it knowing it reflecting on it um and i think that what you talked about the the ceremonial magic or the groups and the rituals i mean a spell is not a spell like um i don't know if you read uh damien eccles new, new book high magic um but he talks about how like spell books are just recipe books like a the the ingredients of the spell or the, or the ceremony, that's just a recipe and it doesn't contain any inherent power in it. It's the intention that, and the energy that you inject it with as a magician that gives it its power. Um, and I think that that's true about uh, a reading a poem or doing a performance too, is that when not only do I have to go into this trance state um, when I'm writing the work, but I have to go into that state when I'm performing it as well. Well, one of the interesting things that 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 raises, you know, it comes up with kind of, uh, you know, chaos magic is in a way chaos magic is premised on that point. It's there's nothing inherent in the system and the golden dawn, the names yeah. of God, nothing is in it's all about intent and performance and event, you know, what's actually happening in that event. But it's interesting that then a lot of people go in certain directions with that. And one side is that there's still a kind of irony about uh about invocation particularly in a kind of public context because you're not really sure where people are and so you want to like let people know that hey it's okay we're just kind of we're going to play here so there's a lot <laughs> of that that tension and you also you also find that in the horror genre there's a lot of humor in horror yeah. films because they 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 actually want to undercut their potential to be really powerful but the problem is is that 
without without the humor, it's you just go one step too far, and then it becomes self parodying and mm-hmm. absurd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how how do you walk that line? I mean, it's it's just that where you you're not funny. You know, yeah. it's it, it, you're. I'm not going to be funny here, and that seriousness <laughs> is an invitation for you to maybe yeah. confront things that you're not quite ready for. But for you, it's also a bit of a of a high wire act because you know it's hard to be serious about this stuff in a way yeah. in public. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I think the um, the way that I find the balance that um, as an artist performing it. Um, or just a sort of like a public identity is that I let the work itself be serious because it it is, I mean, it is, it is, it comes from this like very introspective, but also ecstatic, um, like completely sincere, unironic place and experience. Um, But I can outside of the work have a sense of humor about it. I don't, con- you know, like I don't consider myself a guru. I don't consider myself a, a prophet, even though I consider the work prophetic. And we can talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the book. But so when I do a reading, uh, if I'm if I'm out there performing in front of an audience, though I can recite the work itself with intensity and with um, unmitigated earnesty but then my stage banter outside of that can be self-effacing can be humorous i can make jokes i can you know whatever um and you know kind of weave back into that just so like i take the work very seriously but that doesn't mean i take myself seriously yeah that makes sense i mean a lot of the best ritual i've been to has had that character even inside the ritual there's been points where amidst you know high seriousness there, there's a bit of space for that self-awareness which almost lets the ego kind of breathe a sigh of relief and then it's up for another round you know to, to right. really go back in and like you know a, again it, it has a, a, a kind of psychedelic trip um aspect to it um but let's let's talk about ascend ascend and i mean we you know there's you could tell the story of of the composition but i'm also just interested in the very topic i mean ascent that is like yeah. That is serious stuff. I mean, it, it's it's, and I, I I'll, I'll preface it by saying I thought about it a little bit when I was writing High Weirdness, and and I there's one section of the book that's that's actually in the you know like I'm I'm going to put on my website because I ended up cutting it from the actual book, but I was thinking about the word high and high weirdness. I was like, what does that mean? High? What does it mean to be high? Why do we say drug people to, to take drugs to get high? Why why are the gods up high? What what where does all this come yeah. from? And yeah. you find this like deep deep metaphoric structuring obviously in religion where there's stairways to heaven and ladders and world trees and angels up above and clouds and 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 literal ascents you know your 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 kabbalistic references are embedded in this hecalot literature that that comes from the late antiquity and and yeah. the whole movement of the mystic into the heavens and back and up and down and da 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 but and you and then you deal with this really well is that but nowadays we're like we're uh, reasonably quite suspicious of the ascent impulse because we can see how ascending and the religions of ascent the religions of the high above the low have led it led to a lot of the imbalances of contemporary culture of christianity of people's ideas about the body about nature about women and so you both honor the ascent literature and you you know take it on reproduce it or find your own way through those empyrean heavens 
but you also subvert it and transgress it in really interesting ways. Was that something you were like intending to do or did that just emerge from the practices that, that led to the poem? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so the short answer is, uh, no, it was m- not my intention. Um, I, you know, um, I really didn't even know what I was intending. I didn't know what was happening. And it, and, and I've actually spent like a year unpacking the poem after I wrote it. But, uh, but, um, but before I go down that rabbit hole, uh, part of that, I, I think that, that, that suspicion or that, um, skepticism that you talk about with, with this sort of Ascension religion, um, I mean, it's warranted that, but the important thing to also remember is that like Kabbalah or Hasidic Judaism, I mean, that was at the time in, in, you know, when it sort of came to the forefront in these medieval scholars, they were, they were the rebels. They were the ones who it was a reaction to this traditional rabbinical Judaism. And it's a natural cyclical order that, uh, you know, the, the old order gets someone rises up or a movement rises up against the old order. It overthrows it or it gets integrated. And then that new order becomes the old order, (laughs) you know? And, and as I've been unpacking the work, um, I've been thinking a lot about that and and sort of preparing because I, you know, as, as I get ready to go on my book tour, I have some engagements with JCCs and other Jewish orgs and Jewish audiences. And I'm kind of like building my case or <laughs> being prepared to defend, uh, to defend my position in uh, Jewish mystical literature. But to go back to your, uh, the question that you sort of let off with, did, was that my intention? No, I actually really didn't know almost anything about Ascension literature when I wrote Ascend, Ascend. Um, the, so the way that it came about was, kind of have to go back a number of years um and this ties into your book which by the way i'm super excited about and i didn't know about that special edition so i'm pretty pumped about that (laughs) i'm gonna gonna pre-order that now but um uh going back a number of years uh i um i'm a you know from my youth pretty experienced psychonaut um although i don't partake very often anymore um but a friend of mine gave me some DMT. I'd never done DMT before. Um, and uh, so I sort of, you know, read a little bit about it, read a chapter or two in um, DMT, the spirit molecule. I read a little bit of McKenna's stuff. And then I was like, all right, uh, I'm just going to kind of prepare myself. I'm going to, uh, I was nervous about it because I hadn't really done any hard psychedelics in a, in a number of years at that point. Um, but I, you know, did the whole set and setting thing, spent a couple of days, like, uh, not eating meat, getting really relaxed and getting into a really great mental space. And then my friend and I smoked the DMT and had a really, uh, amazing experience with it. That was really hard to put into words. Uh, but, but a beautiful experience. And, um, part of that experience was I had this uh, like very um, tangible noetic vision of this sort of structure constructed out of light with all these spinning concentric wheels and beings of light shooting up and down. 
And a few months after that, I'm talking to a different friend of mine and I'm describing what I saw in DMT. And he says, dude, it sounds like you saw the Merkaba. And I hadn't even heard that word. I mean, I'm, I grew up, again, my family's Jewish, but I think like a lot of Jews, I had no real exposure to Jewish mysticism. Um, and so I didn't even know the word. I said, what's the Merkaba? And he explained to me, uh, you know, Hecalot literature and Ezekiel's vision and Merkaba. And um, I went and read Ezekiel's vision. I said, yeah, this, this chariot of God that Ezekiel is describing is what I saw. And, you know, um, I say that with a caveat that what, that it, what I saw could also be described as a UFO, or it could also be described as Terrence McKenna's machine elves, you know, like, uh, but, but that's in the literature too. That's the, what's weird about when you read, <laughs> not just, not just Ezekiel, but you go and you read yeah. some of the heck of a lot of literature and you're like, my God, this is so sci-fi. This is so it is. weird. You know, like just, <laughs> it is, just yeah. like angels with eyes all over their wings. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think it's really interesting in that sense that, um, you know, we, if you think of, if you pull back a little bit and you, and you just think of that out there, there is this, um, you know, I I was going to say Gnostic, but I want to even pull it, strip it further out from that, but just like pure data, right? Uh, And that we, um, that we experience that data um, through a variety of lenses. And if you're Jewish, then you're going to experience it as God's utterance, you know, Um, and if you're, or if you're Christian, probably also that way. Um, But if you don't have the, those frameworks, then maybe you're going to experience it as a UFO abduction or, you know, or whatever cultural lens that you bring to it. Um, And I think that's really, that's what's really interesting about, I'm going to say prophecy, uh, again, because I'm talking through the Jewish lens here. But um, when I say prophecy, I just want to make it clear, I'm not talking about uh, prediction or divination, but, uh, you know, uh, divine experience. I think a lot of people, when they think prophecy, they mean, they think prediction, but, um, but, uh, you know, a direct personal experience of the divine. And, and that's a subjective experience. And we communicate that based on whatever imaginative and intellectual capacities that we possess. Um, and so um, when I started trying to then communicate that experience um, when I started writing Ascend, Ascend, because ultimately um, I decided to go back into that state and and witness that chariot and ascend through the heavenly palaces and do it without DMT. Um, that that was then I was able to do that uh, with more intention and more sort of knowledge and come in and out and filter it both through my imagination and my intellect into, and then pour it out as a poem. One of the, that reminds me of uh, one of the moments I really love in the poem where you talk about the great shame. And, and, and one of the things that I really appreciated about this poem from a literary and a uh, aesthetic literary and a, kind of religious point of view or spiritual point of view. I don't really like any of those, either of those words. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, somewhere between the two, you know, spirituals too, it's like kind of limp noodle and religion's right. a little, little much, so, you know, whatever. But is is your embrace of these difficult emotions, your embrace 
Uh, you know, we can talk about the, 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 the horror that's in the awe or the sublime, you know, like staring into space and imagining the infinite voids. You get kind of freaked out. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. But there's something that's much closer to home that in a way is kind of like the human emotional analog of some of those feelings. But these are feelings like shame, like profound yeah. shame, like existential shame and dread. You know, where it's yeah. like, oh, like, I, you know, I, you know, dread is a good friend of mine. I know dread well. <laughs> it's often hard to know what to do with it. And not everybody resonates on the dread frequency. So it's a little bit odd. But you really created a lot of, a, a lot of room for, uh, for these, for these emotions. But you also kind of made them mean, you know, in, in, in not in a programmatic way, but in a way where like taking them on, going through them and going through the horror, and the horrible images and the overwhelming images and the, you know, deliciously fecund, bizarre <laughs> uh, images that arise from them. It, it was, it, it offered me at least a way to kind of move through them and kind of accept them in a, in, in a way. But there's something specific about the great shame that you talked about. Uh, and I just want to read this part because it has to do with a lot of the yeah. themes you were just talking about, where you talk about the great shame in which I establish the ecstasy that can never be established in words, but which I struggle unceasingly to establish in words. And that I want to hear about, is there a link between shame and this apophatic problem this problem of mysticism that you're talking about something you can't talk about it's this classic problem and mysticism and mystical language mystical poetry but the the introduction of the shame changed the whole equation for me so how are you thinking about this great shame as a kind of moment in a spiritual journey yeah well so this actually goes um back into the the Genesis story of the book, which I've kind of danced around a little bit, but I, um, the, I started writing the book, um, on a, um, on a, on an artist retreat at this place called the star and snake, um, in New Hampshire, which is a hundred year old Catholic church that, um, these two artists bought and now, uh, live in and also turned into, uh, an artist residency, but an artist residency specifically for artists who have like a cult and esoteric influences in their practice. So I got accepted to the residency <clears throat> to go up there for a couple of weeks and, and write. And, um, the book I had intended to write, I had been making notes towards in this little notebook for uh, almost two years, uh, which is just kind of how I work. I don't write for a long period of time, but I'm reading a lot and experiencing a lot and sort of writing little fragments of language. And then I sit down and, and create. Um, so I had this notebook of, of all these notes towards a new book. And that, and that book was uh, supposed to be a book-length love poem to Jean Genet. Um, and... Um, the night before I left for the residency, I'm packing up all my, my stuff for the residency and um, the notebook's lost. Like I can't find it anywhere. And um, I'm devastated. I mean, <laughs> not only am I devastated, but um, I'm sort of in shock because, you know, I've made all these preparations to take off from work for a couple of weeks to unplug from life, from email, from family. Everyone's going to leave me alone and I'm going to go do this book that I've been imagining for two years. And now every all my materials for that book are gone. Um, 
And I've actually never found that notebook. I don't know what happened to it. Disappeared. Um, Wait, but, I, uh, I, I have to say that that's it's weird. It's a weird little synchronicity because in in James Merrill's The Changing Light at Sandover, we were talking about the first book, yeah. the Book of Ephraim, and one of the backstories of that poem is that he he in order to write about his Ouija board experiences, he first wrote a novel. Uh, or and he didn't finish it, and then he lost the manuscript. So that kind of inspired the poem. Anyway, go yeah. on, please. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I almost just bailed like the night before, and um, my wife actually talked me off the ledge and encouraged me to go. And she, you know, said just treat it like an opportunity and create something new. Um, she didn't cite Meryl, but you know that was the intention. So I, I just uh, said, all right, I'll go. I'll figure something out. Um, and, um, and then when I got there, because of the nature of the, the residency, it turned out there were a few other artists there who happened to be either sort of more formal, um, students of Kabbalah and Thalema, or at least armchair, uh, you know, philosophers of it. Um, but it was, it was through, I started just having conversations in the first couple of days and then processing those conversations as well as sort of fragments of what I had lost in this Shanae poem coming back to me. And I started writing and then, and then as I started and and my writing process, by the way, has always involved trance. So I would be meditating and then writing and meditating and writing. And, um, that started taking me into higher and higher places. And I, and then I started, there was a great library there at star and snake too. And the, one of the owners, Natan gave me a couple of books to browse through and read um, on Kabbalah. And I started, you know, just kind of using Kabbalah as a scaffolding or a vessel um, upon which I was able to give form to these amorphous mystical experiences I was having. And then a few days in, that's when I, that's when like the structure of this book gelled for me. And I knew that I was going to ascend through the material planes and through the heavenly palaces and try to describe this vision that I had originally seen on DMT, but do that through uh, like real ritual, magical, uh, somatic practices and meditation and um, and that, but that structure of, of ascension enabled me to develop a narrative structure for the poem. And you know, I, and like I said, I used I used the Kabbalah because I'm Jewish and because I was interested in working in that tradition, and because of the materials and the peoples that were available to me at the time of my ascent. Um, because otherwise, uh, an ex- that type of ascension experience exists outside of time and outside of narrative, outside of description. <laughs> so I had to choose some sort of lingua franca to translate that mystical experience into, and in this instance, it was Kabbalah. But, um, but what also crept into there was the, this, um, this epic queer love poem that I had originally intended to write to Jean Genet. And if you're a fan of Genet's work, he also has this sort of, um, you know, Saint Genet where, uh, but his tenants are like, deception thievery betrayal and and through like denouncing everyone that is that is how you attain sainthood but shame is a big part of his um his his trope too so i I sort of brought all of that in with me um and this idea of 
uh, shame and ego death being part of the experience of the divine works its way into the poem and into that specific section of the poem as well ah, okay that 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 makes that makes sense it's amazing again you know it's like the merrill thing where you how an absence or, or a frustration a creative frustration sets the stage for something else and and you know it's a good it's a good lesson for us all in terms of not getting what we think we want uh and and going you know going on forward but uh, one of the things happens in the poem is of course there's a, there's there's an ascent there's there's a sense of of of, of moving upwards into the heavens into these other dim- dimensions but then there's also this descent you know we got yeah. a, we got a nice slice of that at the beginning where we were like back into the gushy stuff and like you know no you know the the no escape you know the uh and and into the body and and into the the gross parts of the body and and all of these sort of domains that are that are you know in a t- more typical old school esoteric or or you know uh cosmic system would be the low the lower the low yeah so I, I want to talk just a little bit. We only got, you know, unfortunately about five minutes here, although hopefully I'll, I'll keep you on for a little bit for our uh, extra, ec- the extra nibbles I like to give our soon-to-come <laughs> Patreon folks. Uh, I mean, I'll, I will do it. But anyway, moving to the question. Um, is what now, like thinking about now, now is still a time when prophecy is possible. Now is still a time when serious spiritual ecstatic work is both possible and for some of us absolutely necessary just to stay alive just to stay in tune it's related to the to the conditions of the world it's related to the conditions of history even if it doesn't entirely mesh um what is the importance now do you see of including that descent that horror even uh that that no transcendence in a in a old school way again as part of sacred work. Yeah, well, <clears throat> if we think about prophecy and the and the way that like the medieval scholars think about prophecy, um, that there are sort of two opposing or uh, main thoughts on what prophecy is or what makes a prophet. And you can achieve prophecy as a way of uh, through a path of perfecting the individual through preparations both spiritual and physical and mental and or it's prophecy as a mission that god just chooses the prophet and that is your mission and you are given to prophecy um i tend to uh subscribe more to the former and that um that you can through your discipline through whatever discipline it is it can be yoga it can be meditation it can be you know, recombining the names of God, you know, whatever your tradition is, but you can do that through a path of perfection. Um, but a perfection doesn't mean flawless. It just means complete and becoming a complete individual. And part of that path, part of that journey is this ego death. And that's where this ugliness and the, this horror comes in is that's, I mean, the, to then talk about Buddha, you know, the, those are the, that's the Maya, the illusion of the world being stripped away. And that is terrifying. That is a, that is a horrific, terrifying, panic-inducing uh, experience. That's the cosmic horror. But if we pass through that, if we get chewed up by these angels or these old gods or <laughs> whatever you want to uh, call them, and then, you know, what's left is, is this essence. And that's what, that's what ascends. It's the the category that or the 
the part of the consciousness that has no category to put anything in. And that that's the, the nothingness of the divine, I guess. So in, in that sense, do you see a, a connection between that that aspect of Ascend, Ascend in your earlier work as uh, Jay Cannibal? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. For me, those, those horror events, um, that horror burlesque is I wanted to create a moment in time a collective moment that that was a ritual where we could all lose ourselves uh, in this revelry, and then in that, that's that's a moment of freedom. That's a moment of transcendence. Yeah, absolutely, and that that comes through very well. You know, in, in her introduction to your book, uh, uh, Pam Grossman talks about taking it out to the woods and, and reading it aloud, and it's very much that kind of book. I mean, I, I find myself reading it aloud in. Uh, in, in, in my room and it just made all the difference. I mean, it really, it really has that extra dimension because it, not just because it sounds good spoken and resonating and with, with the rhythms that the language calls for, but because it turns your own reading into more of a ritual. I mean, reading is a ritual itself, but it's more embodied when, when read aloud. And I encourage people to find the book. I very much encourage you to go to, go to uh, Jonica's website and check out, see if you can see him read live. It's totally awesome, worth the trip, uh, and to, uh, to get Ascend, Ascend. And uh, so, Jonica, thanks so much for joining us uh, on Expanding Mind. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Eric. This was, was really fun. Excellent. All right, folks, uh, until next week, keep your minds open.